All right, so with your Bibles out, what can you tell me about the book of Jude? It's short, okay. What else? Okay, he changed subjects. It's right before Revelation. All right, it's it's kind of a book that we we skip over a lot of times. It's like you know the the little book that that gets read in our Bible reading plans along with the first chapter or two of Revelation, and sometimes we just forget about it and we gloss over it. Uh, well, we're going to take a, take a look at it tonight. We're not going to dive into uh, all the details or all the uh, intricacies of it, and there are a lot of them, um, but we'll take a look at the book. Uh, I think it is uh, very relevant for the day and age we live in and for each one of us as we consider how we interact with, with the world around us. You know, sometimes you're in situations where... It's very obviously pretty dangerous. Okay, so you're up at the top of a ladder with a pressure washer in your hand, holding on to the gutter and trying to wash the side of your house. Okay, or, you know, maybe you're adventurous and you're going to parachute out of an airplane. Okay, you're, you're, at, that, you're at that point where you're like, this is very dangerous, but I realize the fear and, you know, and need to just confront it head on. But there are lots of other situations in life where danger is very close by and we don't even think about it. Uh, I had one time, uh, okay, two times in uh, my previous house that we had. Uh, it was an older house. It had a lot of projects that needed to be done on it, a lot of work that needed to be done. And so I tried to do what I could myself. And we had somebody come in and, and wire some new outlets because there weren't many. It was an old house. And one of them was just a little bit crooked. It was, it was mounted in the wall crooked. So I got out some channel lock pliers and figured, you know, I, I'll just grab on the plastic part and straighten this out. And, you know, I mean, I'll be careful. There's electrical tape around all the contacts. You know, what could happen? And so I just start to twist it into place. And all of a sudden... Sparks fly, and the lights go out, and the kids run into the room screaming and saying, Daddy, what happened? Uh, after they heard the loud pop, and I realized that uh, maybe that wasn't as safe as I thought it was. Um, or, you know, when you're working in, in the attic, and, you know, you have what looks like a solid floor there, but if you step off of one of the little rafters, you would find out that it's not a solid floor. Now, I didn't go through, um, but it just, it's a situation where it looks like everything is fine. You know, there's a floor right beneath you, but it's actually very dangerous because you have a eight, nine, ten foot drop. And so there's situations that, that are a lot more dangerous than they, than they appear. And I think Jude is writing uh, about one of these types of situations where within the church there were people coming in not not clearly bringing false doctrine in not clearly coming in with an agenda but but bringing in the mindset of unbelief 
not all-out atheistic or agnostic. God can't exist. God, you know, there's no way we can know about God. Not that kind of teaching, but the teaching that says, I don't really need God. I mean, we can do things our own way, really, and, and we'll be just fine. And that, that kind of mindset, whether it's, it's proclaimed in doctrine or just lived out in life, is very dangerous for a church. And so Jude takes this letter and he writes to address it and to show how dangerous it really is and how God really views this mindset. And so despite some, some very confusing imagery, uh, I think the book of Jude is very relevant today. We have a, a society, a culture, that is, has thrown away God and is, is living practically as though he didn't exist. And if we're not careful, some of that same ideology, some of that same practice can seep into the church and into our lives. Uh, in verse 10, let me read this in a different version just to, to put it um, in a way we can understand. It says, These people blaspheme anything they don't understand. What they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, they destroy themselves with these things. Is that not a synopsis of, of the world that we live in? They blaspheme what they don't understand. And they destroy themselves with the things that are um, part of their nature. So let's take a let's take a look at this book, see uh, see what it's all about, and see what lessons uh, that God has for us today. All right, as an overview, it was written by Jude or Judas, uh, who was the half brother of Jesus and James. He starts out uh, the book saying, "Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ." And brother of James. Um, now he doesn't explicitly identify which James he's the brother of, uh, but church traditions and everything say that it was James, the half brother of Jesus, which would make Jude also the half brother of Jesus. But notice that he doesn't he doesn't claim that as as some some title, uh, some noble you know noble identifier of, of himself. He says he's a bondservant of Jesus. Uh, and this is, this is kind of a contrast from, from John 7 and verse 5, where it says, for not even his brothers believed on him, talking about Jesus. So at that point, they didn't believe in him. Uh, but then you look in Acts 1 and verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So at some point, um, post-crucifixion, resurrection, you see Jesus' brothers coming to understand that he really was the Messiah and coming to believe in him. This book was written uh, somewhere between 60 and 80 AD, so after most of the Pauline letters, uh, as the last one we have from Paul was around 64, I believe. Uh, so may have been just before uh, Paul moved off the scene, uh, may have been somewhat after that. Uh, so that's uh, when it was written. And unlike, unlike some, of the, some of the epistles that we have, Jude wasn't written to a specific church that is identified in the book. Uh, so some people say this is just a, written to the church as a whole uh, there in the Middle East. 
Uh, but it seems, you know, based on the content of the book, it seems like he's addressing a specific problem at a specific place. Uh, he, he talks about certain men who have come into your midst, and he, he's talking about a letter that he wanted to write to them, but he didn't, so he wrote this one instead. Uh, so it seems like he is writing uh, to a, a specific group of believers uh, with the intent that from there everyone uh, can, can learn from it. We don't know the location, but it does seem, based on the, the imagery, based on the pictures that are used here, that it seems to be a very Jewish audience, uh, at least someone who would be f- familiar with you know, some of the uh, references he makes to, to Jewish tradition and some extra-biblical information um, that, that would be common in Jewish literature. So we think it's to, to some sort of group of Jews or Jewish Christians uh, but we don't know, don't know where. So just to set the stage for this letter, there's, there's, really, there's really two groups of people that, that are, he's addressing in here. Okay, he's addressing the, the believers in the church, and he's addressing this other group that he calls ungodly. Okay, so he's saying there are believers and there are these ungodly people. Now, the ungodly people... Uh, by this point, were actually in the church. Okay. They were in with the body of believers. It's not like he was uh, comparing uh, the church with the secular world around them. They had come into the world. In uh, verse 4, it says, Certain men have crept in unnoticed. So, this is the situation. Jude has these two groups of people that he's writing to or about. And... He really didn't want to write this letter. He, he had it in his mind. He said uh, in verse 3, uh, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. So that's what he wanted to. He wanted to write a letter about salvation, which you know, would, I would have loved to read. But he said, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So he's saying, had this plan A, I was going to write you a letter about salvation, but I see the situation now, and you just need the encouragement to really fight for your faith. Uh, And so that's why he's writing this letter. And you'll see that he doesn't really hold any punches when he's describing the, the conflict between these two groups. Okay, so we start out with a, uh, a description, a profile of the ungodly. And we'll just jump through the, through the book right now um, and, and hit some, some descriptions of them. Okay, so these opponents, these ungodly people, are, are described in multiple, multiple point, uh, points here. But it says, um, the first point, they are sneaky or subtle. Okay, certain men have crept in unnoticed. In verse 4, uh, this wasn't some overt doctrine that is attacking the church it's not something that was you know people walk in flagrantly showing their ungodliness but they crept in and they brought with them this idea of of unbelief uh, within the church without believing in god uh, verse eight uh, we re- we see that they rejected god's lordship over their lives um, We'll touch these verses later. Uh, Verse 12, 
they are deceptive. They do not produce what they promise. Okay, so they're, they're bringing in this, this philosophy, this ideology that says, you know, life is going to, to be so much better uh, if you live it the way we are. We are. And yet they promise what they can't deliver. Well, verse 16, they show kindness to people only to gain their favor. So they're very manipulative. They're, they're, very, uh, they're in it for themselves. Uh, moving on to the next point, they are self-centered. Uh, we see in several verses, their lives are splendid examples of doing it my way. Verse 12, verse 16, and verse 18. We see that they are deeply unhappy. Okay? Deeply unhappy. Grumbling and complaining about circumstances that disappoint them. And finally, they are divisive. Not only are they divisive, but they are plainly unbelievers, people who do not have the Spirit. And we see this in verse 19. So this is the kind of person that, that Jude is talking about. When he's saying these people have crept into the church. It seems like this would be pretty apparent. It seems like someone with all of these characteristics should stick out immediately within the church. They should be able, you know, even when they come in, they should have been noticed right away. Uh, but so, for some reason, they weren't. It was subtle. It was, it was brought in unnoticed. And now uh, there's this, this need to fight within the church to overcome uh, this way of life. And note that the, as, as these people are described, note that it's not primarily their doctrine that he's addressing. Though certainly they have wrong doctrine. Uh, he's addressing how they're living. They're living as a life without God, opposed to God. And within the church, uh, that can't be. So let's go through let's go through the book. Uh, two sections here we'll look at. Verses five through seventeen. Uh, we've seen this before. So Jude talks about these people. He's saying, Listen, this isn't the first time that there have been people that should have known better that are living an ungodly life. Uh, he points out three historical judgments. Okay, in in verse five. Okay, I want to remind you. Though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So think back to, to Exodus, and you have this group of, of two million Jews, and probably, probably up to that point have seen more of God revealing himself than almost anyone else in the world, they have seen the ten plagues. They have seen God's miraculous hand as He parted the Red Sea, as the cloud was behind them, protecting them from from the Egyptians, as the pillar of fire led them uh, at night, and the and the pillar of cloud by day. These people saw it all, and in the wilderness, many of them perished after Kadesh Barnea because of their what? Their unbelief. So they saw all of this proof, this evidence of God, and they were punished because of their unbelief. People who should have known better died uh, because of unbelief. 
The next example he points out here in his three, three historical judgments. You know, verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, this is, there's a lot of hermeneutical issues with this. Uh, this may be referring to what happened in Genesis 6. Uh, it may not. Uh, I'm not going to pass a judgment on that uh, right now. But from what Jude says here, there were angels who clearly overstepped their bounds and because of that are reserved uh, for everlasting judgment. Now, if, if anyone... <laughs> The angels, they were, they were in God's presence. They saw God. They were right there. They should have known better. They should have not rebelled. And because of that, they experienced judgment. Uh, the third example, then, he points out in verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to, sexually, to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth in ex- as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Uh, these, these two cities, you know, were, had, had Lot living in them. They had, you know, the visits uh, from the angels. And yet they were punished by God because of their, their living out their unbelief in their life. Um, we see that story in Genesis 19. So these three examples, Jude is writing and saying, listen, this never ends well. Okay, we've seen people try to go against God before, try to live without God. It doesn't end well. It doesn't work. So as these people are coming into your church and you see them living without God, said, don't buy it. Okay, it's not going to end well. He points out in verse 8, 3... Uh, three characteristics of these ungodly people. Uh, He says, likewise, referring back to these previous three verses, likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, uh, as as did Sodom and Gomorrah. They reject authority, uh, as did the people in uh, in Moses' day. And uh, they speak evil of dignitaries. now this this last one they speak evil of of dignitaries is a you know it's an interesting one um, but we see you know we, we see people without without respect uh, it, he explains this one in verse nine yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, "The Lord rebuke you." So even the archangel Michael respects Satan, respects uh, the, the power that Satan possesses. And these people who don't believe, they, they will um, you know, speak evil of any, any authority, um, but specifically the ones that God has set in place. He's saying, these people are, are destined for a bad ending. He points out three historical heresies that they've that they've pursued. Um, Verse 11, Woe to them! Judgment is coming, saying, For they have gone in the way of Cain. They chose wickedness over goodness. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam. Uh, They've pursued 
profit. They've turned against God's people for their own financial gain um, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, this is a reference to the incident in number 16 when Korah and many others rebelled against uh, God's chosen leaders of Moses and Aaron. And with them, the earth opened up and they were swallowed. And so God's saying, this is, their, this is their destiny. This is who they are. They are associating with these people. Okay? Sure, it might not be this flagrant on the outside, but it's very serious. And this is the, the ultimate end of where they're headed. He gives several, several critical comparisons uh, then he says they are blemishes on the love feasts. The, this, this event that should have been a highlight of the church in showing the love that the Christians have for one another uh, was, was good. And then they have these blemishes. These people who don't love each other, but it says they are serving only themselves. So you have a love feast and you have several people who are showing no love. They are clouds without water in a, in a dry climate like Israel. You know, when you see clouds coming over the horizon, you kind of get your hopes up that maybe it's going to, you know, you're going to get some water out of them. And they just pass by, and it's disappointing. Uh, they are carried about by the winds. They are late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. They are raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Um, destined for cosmological destruction. So these are the comparisons that Jude makes with him. Uh, again, obvious that he's not holding any punches. But he's saying, these people are dangerous. Okay, there is a, a serious problem here with him. So in verse 14, he, he passes his judgment through a quote from, from Enoch. He says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are un- ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So what he says is coming is judgment. He says one day judgment will come on these people who are deciding to live as though God were not there. So that's one group. He's got quite a hard, harsh, harsh, harsh message for them. <laughs> but he doesn't stop there. Okay? He wants to address the believers. Not, not only should they know that that this is bad. This is a serious cause for concern. But he talks about the believers. He talks about, about who they are and how they should respond. So their response, within this, he, there are a couple different aspects from the letter we can pull out. Uh, verse 1, he specifically identifies them to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. He gives them three Three adjectives. They are called, they are sanctified, and they are preserved by God. So these people in the church who are walking in obedience to God, in belief in God, 
God is saying, I have called you and I will preserve you. You, will, you are mine and I will not let you fall away. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that at the end. So even though there is this, this uh, danger of this attitude of unbelief, saying, you who believe, I will keep you in your belief. Um, we see that the recipients of the letter were special. They were loved by God. Three times in this, uh, this short letter, he refers to them as beloved. Verse 3, uh, and then down in verse 17, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken. Uh, verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up. And it seems like each time he addresses them, he calls them beloved uh, to let them know that, that he cares about them. He cares about their situation. Uh, this battle that they were fighting, uh, Jude was careful to let them know that, that they were not, this wasn't the first time it happened and it wasn't anything that, uh, that they should have been surprised about. Okay, this was a battle begun by saints in the past. Um, in verse 3, we see this. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So this is, you know, this, the faith that you have, the faith that you possess and order your lives by, this was given um, once for all to the saints to continue and, you know, to preserve it. And so you're not the first ones to fight this battle, to contend for the faith. And he said, just like those before you, uh, God will help you. So verse 17 to 25 then, after he talks about exactly the problem and the, and the certain judgment of this attitude, he, he then talks about their response. How should the believers respond? Okay, how should we respond? Uh, first of all, we should take heed to ourselves. Verse, uh, verse 17. Okay. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Okay. So in taking heed to, them, to ourselves, to, to focus on, on our standing... Okay, we need to first remember that, that these people were promised to come. That these people were predicted to come. This isn't a surprise. This appearance of evil and evil influence, even within the church, shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, because um, the apostles said that it was coming. Jesus Christ said it was coming. There's no need to be, to be shaken when we see something like this happening. Secondly, uh, focusing on ourselves to build ourselves up in the faith. Uh, verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Uh, this is spiritual growth to, to develop our faith. You know, faith comes and we obey. We take another step of faith and our faith is built. As we see God keep his promises to us as we see him order our lives as we walk with him our faith grows and we become more and more confident that he will do what he said he will do and that he is who he said he is 
We also need to be praying in the Holy Spirit. The next point there. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Also in verse 20. And both of these, building yourselves up in faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, are um, ways uh, to fulfill the command in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God, and this is done by building yourselves up in faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. So keep yourselves in the love of God is walking in his commandments. Uh, if you look, you know, reference, cross-reference this with uh, what we see in 1 John, um, if we love him, we are to keep his commandments. Uh, this, is, this is saturating ourselves in the love of God, not just... Not just love for God, but rec- recognizing his love for us, which is where any love that we have for God can come from. And finally, to look for or wait for the mercy of Jesus unto eternal life. Uh, now, this is, a, this is an awkward phrase uh, for us. Look, look for the mercy of Jesus unto eternal life. Uh, this, doesn't, this doesn't mean that we need to look around and try to find mercy that will get us eternal life. Uh, this is a look, looking in anticipation uh, for the mercy uh, that, that will lead into eternal life. So I think what he's, the picture he's painting here is looking ahead and at Christ's return, receiving mercy instead of the judgment that the, uh, that the unbelievers will, will get. Uh, the believers will get mercy. Uh, so take heed to yourselves. Be careful of where you're at. Uh, but also, watch out for others. This is a, uh, a pretty familiar verse for us. But others, or verse 22, and, some, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment, defiled by the flesh. So you have within the church, you have, or within the address of this letter, um, in some churches, um, you know, may have the whole spectrum, as there was here. You have those who believe. You have those who are living a, an atheistic lifestyle with no belief in God and kind of trying to persuade others of that ideology and then you have those in the middle. So on those, to those who believe but doubt, show mercy. Don't give up on those who waver. Uh, that, that verse, or that uh, word there, uh, making a distinction. Uh, the Greek word is, is, is those who are, are wavering. Uh, those who are, are, are shaken. It says, show mercy on those. Then to those who are inclined to follow the false teachers, uh, snatch them from the fire. Uh, there's a, a very interesting uh, allusion here to uh, Zechariah, uh, Zechariah chapter 3 in the Old Testament. There's a vision that Zechariah has of the high priest Joshua. Let me just read this as um, there's a couple points that, that parallel here. And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. 
And the Lord said to Satan, that the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed, clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. There's another reference, uh, Amos 4.11, uh, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you return not to me. So this allusion here to snatch them out of the fire means as judgment is, is coming, as they are almost enveloped in judgment, to still reach out and to try to pull them out, to save them um, in the nick of time, as it were, before they are consumed with the fire of judgment. And then to those who are deeply ensnared, uh, we are to also show them mercy, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh, understanding that sin has defiled these people in a remarkable way. And yet we are to show mercy uh, mixed with fear. And so as we, as we consider our, our place you know, when, when we have a culture that is, has turned away from God, uh, as we see other people who at one time were in the church and have turned away from God, you know, for those who are headed down that path, we need to try to, to point them back to God. We need to, in the end, we need to keep the big picture in mind. And I think that's what, what Jude does here at the end. He wraps up with the big picture. Sure, we're in this conflict. Sure, you know, some of this is very, it's very harsh and critical, but it needed to be. But at the end, he steps back and says, you know, we need to keep this whole thing about God our Father. He closes with these verses. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So God is the one that in this whole conflict, this whole battle, he is the one who is able to keep us from falling. Not, not... In this, in this sense, he doesn't mean that he's going to keep us from ever sinning, but he will keep us, he will keep us as his own um, and to present us faultless before his throne. Uh, in, um, in looking at this, it, you know, it seems like such a harsh message in some ways. In other ways, it seems like because they are violating the very message that God has given to us, um, it seems like this is the shoe fitting on uh, the foot that it was made for. Um, and so as we, as we view our society, as we view people that we love, who 
who are battling, we need to, to let this sink in. Let the gravity of, of this battle sink in. And, you know, in some, some areas, you know, Christians are, are, are portrayed as being very intolerant. And now, just a little picture here. Like, if my, if my son or daughter wanted to have, you know, grape juice at a meal, and I said, no, grape juice is bad, you need to have apple juice. Okay, so that, um, I may have reasons for that, but that's kind of intolerant, okay, because there's not really, there's not really a reason for one or the other. But if my son or daughter wanted to have, you know, a cup of bleach, I would say, no, you're going to have water or something. Okay, that's compassion. Okay, that was, that's the kind of thing, because there is a big difference uh, and the end result will be different. Um, it's not intolerance. It's, it's compassion. There, there's a reason that I don't want my kids to drink bleach or anything else under the sink. Um, you know, because I care for them. And so as we, as we view society, that should be our approach. Approach of compassion. Because we care for them. And we don't want to see them. Uh, falling under the purview of God's judgment, where we want to see them being a picture of his grace as he rescues them for their sin.